0: You may leave now for kids' own worship. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. I'm fighting a cough, so if I end up drinking a lot of water up here, it's because I need to. Acts chapter 10. When you think about the history of the United States... We've had a pretty dark history of racism, of racial segregation. We think about the horror of what slavery meant back in the 1800s. From about the end of the Civil War to roughly around the 1960s, America instituted what are called Jim Crow laws in the South. They were basically segregation laws where blacks could not vote, blacks could not have jobs, they could not ride in the front of the bus, they couldn't drink out of the same water fountains, they were um, segregated in schools in our own country. And it wasn't until 1955 when a national hero like Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus that sparked a national firestorm. And then we have heroes like Martin Luther King Jr., who was the consummate spokesman for the Civil Rights Movement. Many of you may have seen the new George Lucas movie. I haven't seen it, Red Tails, about the first African-American commanders in World War II from the Tuskegee Airmen who were able to fly in World War II. And you remember 1954 was the Brown versus the Board of Education We also know the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so, really, about six or seven years before I was born, African Americans in this country did not have the basic civil rights that most of us celebrate today. These laws were officially ended with legislation. But as great as laws are to end segregation, as great as laws are to end racism, there will always be sin in the human heart. And that sin will always want to rise and there will always be racism and discrimination and segregation. Whether it's slavery in the 1800s, whether it's apartheid in South Africa, whether it's ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and Serbia. And as I said last week and a few weeks ago, I despise racism. I hate racism, segregation, discrimination in any form or fashion. Because what I believe is I believe it, it cuts the guts right out of the gospel. It takes the guts right out of the power of the gospel. So here's our main point for this morning. Here's where we're going to camp out. The power of the gospel destroys or breaks down the dividing wall of racial hostility. The power of the gospel destroys racial hostility. Now, before we get to Acts this morning, I want to lay a foundation. Very rarely do we talk about race or ethnicity or discrimination, but I want to give a foundation before we get into the book of Acts of what the Bible actually has to say about this whole issue of race and ethnicity. There's some foundations that we need to understand biblically about how God has created the world. So here's foundation number one. God has sovereignly determined the races, the ethnicities, where people live, the cultural boundaries. God is sovereignly in control of all the races on planet Earth. Now, where do I get that? Acts 17, 26 states this. Paul is preaching on Mars Hill. We'll get to this in a few months. He made from one man, speaking of Adam, every nation... Greek word there, ethnos, ethnicity. He made from one man every ethnicity of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, who's the one man? Adam. Who has done this? God. God has created the races. God has created the ethnicities. God in his sovereignty has ordained where people live, what color people are. God is sovereignly in control of that. Secondly, here's second foundation. Regardless of race or ethnicity, all human beings are created in God's image and therefore have an inherent dignity as a human being, regardless of race. James 3, 8 through 10. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, speaking of our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. People are made in the image of God. Foundation number three. God's plan from the very beginning was that all the nations, all the peoples, all the races, all the ethnicities of the earth would be blessed eventually through Christ. Now this was first articulated to Abraham. In Genesis 12, those of you that are in my Wednesday night class, we've looked at this, the, the issue of the call of Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we find out what God says to Abram. Now, the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed.'" The blessing of Abraham was not just for the Israelites, it was not just for the Jews, it was ultimately to come through Christ so that all the nations of the earth, all ethnicities, all peoples would be blessed by Christ. Fourth foundation, and it's our theme for this morning, the cross breaks down or destroys racial hostility. A key passage of scripture on this is Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 16. Paul is speaking of Jews and Gentiles, and that's really the issue that we're going to be talking about this morning. But there was racial tension between Jews and Gentiles. And notice what Paul says that the cross has done. Ephesians two thirteen through 16. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. "...by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross..." thereby killing the hostility. Paul says, through the cross, we've been brought near. We've been brought near to God in a personal relationship, but we've been brought near to each other, and so there should be no racism, no uh, ethnocentrism, no discrimination, because the cross shatters that, because God says, I'm creating one new man. Jew and Gentile are coming together as one new man, one family. Fifthly, fifth foundation, we see the envision of what God has in mind. We're not left in the dark as to what God's will is for all the nations, for all the peoples. Revelation 5, 9-10 through 10 is probably one of the most powerful passages of Scripture that speak about God's plan. It's, it's the end of time where all the nations, all the peoples, all the ethnicities, all the races, multicolored, multifaceted, are around the throne of King Jesus. Listen to what it says. And he sang, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God out of or from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In heaven, there will be a representative from every race, every ethnicity, every tribe, tongue, people, nation, around the throne, all together, There in heaven. It was God's plan from the beginning. We see it at the end. And so this is an absolute truth. We can't get away from what the Bible says about the dignity of all races, all ethnicities. Everyone has value before God. The cross shatters segregation. The cross shatters racism. The cross shatters discrimination. All The the dividing wall of hostility has come crashing down in the cross. But for the consummate apostle Peter... He had to learn the lesson the hard way. He was blinded to his own racism. He was blinded to his own prejudice. And God had to intervene in sovereign grace and fuel him to realize that God is not a respecter of purpose, of persons. Now, we've seen this going forth of the gospel to different types of people. A few weeks ago, we saw Philip go to the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans weren't quite Gentiles. They were more of a half-breed, not Jew, not Gentile. The, The Samaritans come to faith in Christ. We go to the next story where Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch, shares the gospel with him. He receives Christ and goes back to Africa. But yet, we haven't come to that point in time where the gospel goes wholeheartedly to the Gentiles. For the most part, the gospel, the church, and the book of Acts has been confined to the Jews. Now, I'm purposely skipping over the last portion of chapter 9. You can go back and read that. There's not a lot to preach on. Basically, there's there's two stories of, of Peter doing miracles. You can go back and read that on your own. But what I want us to do is to jump right into chapter 10 because it's a very, very important passage of Scripture in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, this is repeated multiple times, this story. It's so important the story is repeated. Acts chapter 10. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Peter and Cornelius. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa. And bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, we're confronted here with the third conversion story in our book of Acts so far. Who's the first guy to get saved? The Ethiopian eunuch. Second guy? Saul of Tarsus. Now we've got Cornelius. Where is he? He's in Caesarea. Caesarea is a military town. The Roman garrison is there. The Roman occupation is there. It's a a very large area, a, a military town. And Cornelius is a centurion. It means he's a military commander. He's a captain of about 100 soldiers. And what we find out from Cornelius is that he's a very moral and religious man. I mean, he goes to church. He gives money to the poor. He tries to raise his family doing the right thing. You would say that he would be the consummate, God-fearing, church-going man. But yet, what do we find out about Cornelius? He is not a Christian yet. He's not been saved by grace. And as I began to think about Cornelius, what I see in Cornelius is a picture of a lot of people in northeastern Colorado. You've got a lot of people living in our community, our conservative, rural, agricultural, God and country type community where a lot of people think that they're good with God because they're religious, they go to church, they try to raise their family in church, they may try to do good. They're good good country people in northeastern Colorado trying to do a lot of good religiously by trying to earn points with God by being good, but yet they don't have a relationship with Christ. They're not saved. They haven't been regenerated. It's a facade. You see, when it comes to true salvation, God gets past all the religion and he dives right into your heart and he causes your eyes to be open to your own personal sin. You see your need for a savior. You cry out to Jesus in repentance and faith. And there's that miracle of the new birth that happens in your heart that causes you to cry out to Jesus and you are truly saved. Not, not just being a God-fearing good guy. I mean, you, 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 a lot of people think they're Christians just because they grew up in America or because their, their parents go to church or their grandparents are good people or, or maybe they're the CEOs. You know what a CEO is? Christmas and Easter only people. You know, they go to church Christmas and Easter. I'm good with God. You can be a God-fearing, giving, generous person that looks real religious and good and still be hell-bound without Christ. Here's Cornelius, a man who's doing all these good things, but he's still not saved. He still needs the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to him. And so it's about 3 o'clock... He's praying and an angel visits him and says, go call for Peter. This man's staying down at this tanner's house in Joppa. And so Cornelius freaks out and says, okay, an angel appears to me. He sends some men down to go find Peter. Now what's Peter doing? In the meantime, God is working on Peter to bring these two, these two people together for a divine appointment. So let's continue reading the story. This is where it's going to get a little long. I'm going to read the whole rest, uh, pretty much the, 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 the whole portion here of chapter 10. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's about noon. He became angry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the things were taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to the house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guest. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And as he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the lord so where's peter he's in joppa what's the irony about being in joppa do you remember the old story the old testament story of jonah where was jonah jonah was told by god go to nineveh where does jonah go he goes and gets on a boat in joppa and goes the opposite direction where is peter staying he's staying in a tanner's house that's kind of odd because what's a tanner bunch of dead animals around so that you can make skins. So there's something weird going on. Also, what time is Peter praying? Noon. You don't normally pray at noon. You eat at noon. So Peter's hungry up on the rooftop, and he goes into a trance, and he sees this great sheet being brought down, and it has all types of animals in it. Are the animals that are referred to in Genesis 1, birds, animals, reptiles, and we have to understand why Peter was so disgusted when, when, when the Lord says, eat these, kill these and eat. Now, if you want some really exciting reading, go back and read Leviticus 11. I'm just joking, by the way. Leviticus 11 tells you all the laws about what the Israelites were supposed and not supposed to eat. And I'm not going to bore you with that, but let me just give you Leviticus 20, 25 through 26. It kind of gives a a summary statement. In the Old Testament, God said, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which which the ground crawls, which I've set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. For I am the Lord and am holy, have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Old Testament, Peter knew his Bible. These are unclean animals. I, I shouldn't eat them. It's disgusting. It's gross. It's, it's going to defile me. And God has to get his attention. How many times? Three. There's something with Peter in threes, right? Denied Jesus three times. Peter was reinstated three times by Jesus. And what does God say in verse 15? What God has made clean, do not call common. You see, this whole Old Testament system of clean and unclean animals was really a temporary issue. It was a temporary issue because, here's the issue, in the Old Testament, God wanted his nation, the Israelite people, to be separate from all the other nations, and so he instituted ceremonial laws, he instituted ceremonial food, and the types of things they should eat, things that are clean and unclean on the outside, but when Christ came, all that stuff was done away with, the temporary nature of clean and unclean has been away with, and so now, the issue is not whether it's clean or, or unclean on the outside, the issue is the heart's. What did Jesus say about the heart? He says, we need to be cleansed from the inside through the power of the gospel. Jesus said in Mark seven eighteen through 23, these are the words of Jesus. He's reinterpreting this whole clean and unclean issue. He said to them, "'Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean.'" And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What Peter comes face to face with is the issue is not whether I'm eating a clean or unclean food on the outside. The issue is, is my heart clean? Have we been cleansed from within by the power of the gospel? Because from the inside is what comes the wickedness, Jesus says. And so God orchestrates this object lesson to show Peter that it's okay to go associate with the Gentiles. Look at verse 28. He says in verse 28, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew To associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. To the Jews, the Gentiles were considered dogs, scum of the earth, trash, There was racial prejudice. There was hostility. These were the lowest of the low. These were unclean pagans. I would not even go in their house. If I came across a dish that had happened to be just touched by a Gentile, I would have to go through a ceremonial cleaning to make sure that it was totally cleansed before I would even eat off of it because I do not want to get in any contact with these Gentile dogs. Less walk into their house and have a meal with them. But what does Peter do? God shows him this object lesson and says, don't call what I've made clean unclean. In other words, Peter, I have created all the races. I've created all the ethnicities. They're not Gentile dogs. They are people worthy of the gospel. They're people who have inherent dignity. They're people created in God's image, so don't call them unclean. Peter, get rid of your racial discrimination. Peter, get rid of your prejudice and go walk into the house and share the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius. And it's interesting because Cornelius is waiting for Peter. He's got his family, and his friends gathered there. And do you hear the expectation of Cornelius? He's, on, he's waiting with bated breath to hear what does Peter have to say. So let's see what Peter has to say. He's taking a risk. He's going into the house of a Gentile dog. What does Peter say? Let's pick up in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no Partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. And you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with His Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 34 is the crux of the issue. I understand that God shows no partiality. I've had to learn, Cornelius, through this object lesson of these sheets, that I've had some prejudice, that I believe that that I can't go to the Gentiles, I can't associate with the Gentiles, I can't associate with someone that's a different race, different ethnicity than me, but I've seen that through the cross, that comes all shattering down. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. Just unless you think this is a New Testament thing, listen to what God said in the Old Testament. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. What does God say? Now, I'm not going to get political here because that's not my purpose as a pastor. Whether, whatever you believe about immigration, it's up to you to, to work those issues out. But God here says love the immigrant, love the sojourner, love the fatherless, love the widow. I don't understand all the issues related to the politics of it, but I do know this. There are people in this nation, whether illegal or legal, we'll let the, the politicians work that out. But those are people that need Jesus. And while they're here, we need to be sharing the gospel with everyone that comes across our paths. Now remember, Cornelius is a very religious man. He's a God-fearing man. He's a morally upright man. But is he saved yet? No, he still has to hear the gospel. He still has to put his faith in Christ. And so we get to see Peter's message again. Peter preaches another message. And so we get an example here of of how to do witnessing, how to share the gospel. And notice how Peter starts. He starts in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He starts his message. Cornelius, the message first was to the Israelites. We were given the message of peace, but now I'm coming to you as a Gentile to give you the message of peace peace is isaiah 52 7 how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation who says to zion your god reigns now why is the message of the gospel peace the message of the gospel is peace because here's what happens. Those of us who are enemies of God, those of us who are rebellious against God, those of us who stand hostile against God because of our sin have been brought near through the blood of Christ, and we now have peace with our Creator through Jesus. And this peace is not just for the Israelites, it's also for the Gentiles. And Peter says, I'm giving you a message of peace. We looked at that passage earlier in Ephesians two fourteen through 16 He himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And Notice what, what else Peter says here. He says he's Lord of all. He's not just Lord of the Jews. He's the Lord of all. Now Paul addressed that in Romans. Romans 10, 12-13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name will be saved. Okay. Peter's sermon begins to focus on the life of Christ. He says, okay, Christ was baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, he went about doing good deeds, he went about um, in the power of the Holy Spirit casting out demons. Peter focuses on the, the, the message of the gospel in the life of Christ and then he focuses on the death of Christ they nailed him to a tree. Now, that's Peter's favorite word to talk about, tree. Now, we often talk about a a cross, and, and yes, it's a cross, but for Peter, he talks about it being a tree. Now, why does he use the terminology tree? Because it meant something to the ancient Israelites. What does Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 tell us about a person that's on a tree? If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is what cursed by god to the ancient israelites if you were on a cross or you were hanging from a tree it was evidence that you were god forsaken you were god cursed that god had abandoned you and guess what that's exactly what christ experienced he was forsaken, he was abandoned, he was cursed on the cross because of our sins, taking our place. As a matter of fact, Galatians three, thirteen through fourteen says that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, remember God's initial plan, the blessing of Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. First Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Okay, here's the message. Peter says, okay, it's a message of peace. It's a gospel of peace. I'm going to focus on the life of Jesus. I'm going to focus on the death of Jesus. Guess what he's going to do next? We've seen this over and over again. This is probably what? The fifth sermon we've heard by Peter? The resurrection of Jesus. Verse 40, God raised him from the dead. But in verse 42, Peter adds a new element to the gospel presentation. The gospel presentation is always the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. That's that's part and parcel of the gospel presentation. But in verse 42, notice what Peter adds, a new element. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be what? The judge of the living and the dead. Not only did this Jesus Christ live a perfect life, Die a sinner's death, rise again victoriously, ascend back to the Father in heaven, but He's going to come back in power and in judgment to judge the living and the dead. John five twenty six 26-27, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted, life, uh, granted the Son also to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He's the Son of Man. Who has authority to execute judgment? Jesus, because He is the Christ. Now, here's a, here's a frightening passage of Scripture, but I want to read it for you. It's 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. Just in case you think Jesus is some feathery haired guy walking around with a sandal and uh, sandals and, and just like a lot of pithy sayings, and he's just a really nice guy, Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. He will come back in power and authority. Listen to what 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 says. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Christ will come back in power and glory. And then in verse 43, there's the response. What is verse 43? Everyone who believes will receive forgiveness. You've got to believe. You will receive forgiveness when you believe upon this message. Repent and believe. Now, in verses 44 through 48, we have a Gentile Pentecost. Remember the first Pentecost? Who was there at the first Pentecost? It was Jews from all over the known world, but they were Jewish. And God came and they began to speak in different languages, speaking in tongues. It was a a pouring out, and the Jewish people spread out it had not come yet upon Gentiles and so what we have here is a Gentile Pentecost because you now you have Jew and Gentile coming together the first time a, a Gentile family accepts the gospel you have a little mini Pentecost going on again so let's continue reading While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Notice the way it says even. Like, I can't believe it would even be poured out on the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Okay, are you ready for it again? Week after week after week after week, what happens after they believe? You say it with me. What does it say there in verse 47? Can anybody withhold water from... Say it with me, come on now baptism okay every week we're seeing it and by now let me just say something if you're sitting out there and you are a christian and you have not been baptized by immersion you should have a knot in your stomach this morning because every week you're getting confronted with it if you are a youth and i know pastor andrew has talked to our youth extensively about baptism this should be another reminder that baptism comes after salvation, and so I'm going to say it again like I say it every week because we see it every week. If you have not been baptized, then come see me after the sermon, or come talk to me during the week, or make a phone call, or, or send me an email. But we want you to understand that this is the biblical New Testament pattern. People hear the gospel, they respond to the gospel, they believe to the gospel, and then what do they do? They get baptized. And notice what happens here. In verse 49, 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. So his family was baptized. And notice what Peter did. He stayed there for some days. That was an issue for Peter. It was was enough for him just to enter the home of a Gentile, but what does he do? He stays there, which means what? He has to, how's he going to get food? He has to eat with them. He hangs out with them. And that was for their benefit because they're brand new Christians. He needs to disciple them. He needs to encourage them. He needs to gather them together. But it's also for his benefit to let this experience truly sink in that he's going to spend time with these Gentiles. Now, we look at the story and say, okay, I'm not going to have a white sheet come down and I'm not going to have all these animals and I'm not going to go into the house of a Gentile. What does this have to do with me? Let me suggest some practical implications of this issue related to racism, related to prejudice, related to this whole Jew-Gentile thing coming together. First of all, the ultimate issue in salvation is not skin color. It is the heart. Whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, any other ethnicity that I've forgotten, it's not the color of your skin or your ethnicity that's the issue in God's sight. The issue is that the playing field's level at the foot of the cross because we're all sinners in need of the gospel. It's our hearts that need to be saved, needs to be cleansed by the power of the gospel. And so God makes no distinction for skin color. No, no one race gets a pass because of their color and no one race gets looked over because of their color. Every race is Equal at the foot of the cross were all sinners in need of salvation. And God's end mission, in vision, is that there would be representatives in heaven. Secondly, in our evangelism, we need to be very careful that we don't call sinners to adopt our man-made spin on Christianity. You understand what I'm saying? Here's oftentimes what happens. We go to a lost person and we say, Okay, you need to get your hair cut. You need to listen to K-Love or Air One or KTLF, whatever one. You've got to have the right Christian bumper sticker. You've got to, get your, you know, got to get rid of your tattoos. You've got to get your whole life in order. And once everything is the way we want you to be, then you can hear the gospel. And what we've done is we've basically said, well, you've got to line up to what our belief system is. Now, you know, we can talk about all those different issues at another time, but I want to make sure that we're presenting people the gospel first. We can't expect people who are culturally different from us to somehow just embrace the gospel. We who are Christians need to take the initiative to bridge those gaps, to scale those walls, to go to people who are different from us and say we've got the message of Christ as opposed to saying you've got to adopt our spin on what we think Christianity is. We cannot expect lost, dead, enslaved sinners to wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'm going to walk into Emmanuel Baptist Church because those guys are cool. It's not going to happen. The Great Commission is not sit around and wait for lost people to come into your church. What's the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The responsibility is upon us to go to people that may be culturally different, racially different, ethnically different. We've got to take the initiative because we've got the gospel. And this leads to the third implication. This should fuel within us a passion for world missions, especially among unreached people groups. Why in the world do we get on a plane for 20 hours to go to the the tribal groups in India to live in mud huts for a week to reach the Bhagata people of India. Why do we do that? Why do we pray? for Muslims why do we pray for those in Africa and Asia why do we even do world missions to people that are different from us because we believe that at the end of the day Revelations 5 9 is the truth that there will be a representative from every tribe tongue nation and people group and here's the problem a lot of times in the past how did Europe go about conquering the pagan the heathen it was through white imperial colonialism And I'm ashamed of a lot of what was in the name of Christianity was done in centuries past. It was basically oppression and slavery and had nothing to do with the gospel. And so we're not going over as the, the enlightened white people to somehow get, 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 get the, the heathens' act together. No, we're going as one beggar to show another beggar where to find, find food regardless of our skin color, but we should have a passion for world missions. Not this colonialism, not this idea that we're going to go over there and show them how it's done, but we're going to go over there with the love of Christ to encourage them and love them and show them that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Number four, this should feel within us a priority to pray for our Hispanic church partnership. I don't know if you guys know we have a Hispanic church. Now, when I say Hispanic church, don't think about 50 people having a worship service. We're talking Oscar and Aurora de la Cruz who come from Greeley every Tuesday night and right now they're meeting with one couple. And it may be discouraging to think, well, why in the world is it just one couple? But let me tell you why it's encouraging. We've been praying for about a half a year now that God would raise up leaders among the Hispanic church. And I met with Oscar this past week and he said, you know what? We really believe that this one couple may be the future pastor of this church. And we've got one-on-one, uninterrupted time to disciple and encourage and equip this young couple to be the pastor of the new church. Now that is an amazing thing because we look at it and say, well, all these numbers aren't coming and there's not 50 or 100 people. Oscar and Roar told me it took them seven years in Windsor before they got up to about 75 people. And they're committed to keep coming and encouraging. And we need to see that the Hispanic church is not just, that's the Hispanic church and we're the the Anglo church. No, we're, we're both part of the body of Christ and we need to encourage the Hispanic church partnership. Fifthly, this should fuel within us the practice of celebrating racial and ethnic diversity in our congregation. We often don't celebrate that. The racial and ethnic diversity. I'm thankful that we have, I look out here and I see all ethnicities, all colors, all races. I even see people from different countries and different ethnicities and we all come together. And let me just say this, when you walk through the doors of Emmanuel Baptist Church, all that stuff goes flying out the the window. We come in as one family, one body, one people. We're here to worship the Most High God and we should celebrate the fact that we have all these different multiplicities of colors. Now think about it. If heaven is going to be multicolored, multi-ethnic, multi-racial around the throne, don't you think we better start practicing it now? Because in heaven, we're going to be around this marvelous display of God's creation. And of all places on planet Earth, hear me, the church needs to reflect heaven. The church should not reflect the culture. The church should reflect a celebration of the diversity that God has created in the different races and tribes. Lastly, this should feel within us a position of repentance. James 2.1, it's not on your screen, but let me just read James 2.1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. My brothers, show no partiality. For some in this room this message may fuel you to repent. And what do I mean by repent? Are there any attitudes of racism? Are there any attitudes of ethnocentrism? Is there any attitudes of of, of puffing yourself up, of, of segregation, of prejudice? If they're in your heart, you need to repent. And repentance is more than just feeling sorry. Repentance may mean you need to go to another person and actually ask their forgiveness. You may need to do something concrete about it. The gospel shatters all pride, racism, arrogance, ethnocentrism, anything that would elevate one race or one ethnicity above another, and we need to repent of that. Last week, we looked in and we saw what a healthy church was, right? Remember the, the five elements of a healthy church? It was being built up, it was, it was multiplying, it was walking in the fear of the Lord, it was being empowered by the Holy Spirit, it, it had peace. I would say this, right on the tails of that picture of a healthy church, here's another element of a healthy church. A healthy church that reflects heaven. A church that celebrates and reflects the ethnic and racial diversity of what's going to be around the throne in heaven. Now, we can't manufacture this, we can't coerce this, we can't somehow, you know, do affirmative action to make sure that our, everything's working the way that, that we want it to work. God has to do that, but I would say this, are we creating a culture here at Emmanuel where there's a freedom and there's an acceptance and there's a love of all people, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, that when they may come into these doors, we love them with the love of Christ, we extend care and compassion, and that, that through the cross of Jesus Christ, the racial hostility that may be deep in our hearts comes shattering down, because through the cross of Christ and through Him being our peace, He's brought us near, not only near to Him, but near to each other as the family of Christ. Would that we at Emmanuel Baptist Church reflect Revelation 5, 9, that on Sunday mornings as we gather, it would be a picture of what's going to happen in heaven around the throne. As one family, from one man, Adam, we all sing praise to the second man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I'm not sure how this sermon's going to land on many of you. So I'm just going to leave you in the tension of silence. And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do his work. And so, would you just spend some time in silent prayer this morning, asking the Lord of glory to search your heart and to bring conviction to your mind? Father, as we come before you this morning and we're confronted with our own, maybe prejudices, our own sin in our own heart, I pray that you would lead us to repentance. That we would trust in you, Jesus, and the power of the gospel, and that we truly would be a people that walk in unity and in harmony, and that we reflect the ethnic and racial diversity of what's going to be in heaven. I'm thankful, Lord, for how you've ordained the races and the nations and, Lord, how the world is today because it's not some accident. It's not some accident of evolution. It's because of your plan and purpose that the world is the way it is today. And we who have the gospel have the responsibility to be the ones to take the gospel to all the nations, to be the leaders in love, to be the leaders in peace, to be the leaders in racial reconciliation, to be the leaders and what it means to be a gospel-centered people. I thank you for the story of Peter, Lord, how you had to work in, in the Apostle Peter's own heart to see that you show no partiality and that we should call something that you've made clean. We should never call it unclean or common. Do a work deeply in our hearts, Lord, for your glory and your grace.